1: Today is June the 2nd, 2020. This is episode 2672 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. It's a work-in interview, and it is uh, with Jeff Lawton. For those of you that haven't met Jeff before, Jeff is, in my opinion anyway, and I don't know if there's any official ranking of this, but I, if there is, I, I highly doubt that anybody would would contend otherwise, was what I'm about to say, the number one permaculturist in the world today. And If you're not familiar with permaculture, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Permaculture is the concept of a permanent culture. There's a lot of things to do with agriculture or horticulture, growing food and plants, fibers, medicine, etc. Um, in permaculture because it's intrinsic to human survival. But a lot of people think that when Bill Mollison, who was Jeff's uh, direct mentor and the founder of permaculture and who passed away a few years ago um, – when he founded the concept that it was based on permanent agriculture, well, he and David Holgram who's still with us, who are the co-founders of the movement, um, they never meant for it to be taken as permanent agriculture. From the beginning, it was exactly what it says, perma or permanent culture, culture, permanent culture. So permaculture is a system that uses natural processes and design science and energy audits divine to design systems of living that provide everything that humans need while creating a surplus versus causing a, a deficit so what you one of the things you'll hear us talk about today is gardening and farming and if you're doing it right at the end of a farming season there should be more se- there should be more soil than when you started not less and like for instance our Department of Agriculture, has determined there is an acceptable amount of soil loss per season. And they actually now, I mean, they're trying to deal with some runoff and things like that, and they actually have a standard, and if you exceed that, uh, a lot of farmers are dependent on federal funds and things like that. They can lose that. There's even places where you can be fined uh, for exceeding the loss allotment, losing more soil than they say you're allowed to. But you'll hear actually us have this conversation at some point today. If you're losing soil every year, whether it's a tiny amount, a little amount, a middle sized amount, a large amount, but if you're losing soil every year, then there's only one place that leads to desert. That's the only, in the end, it might take longer to get there if you're losing less of it, but the only place you're headed for is a desert. So we're taking the most arable farmland in the world and we're creating deserts. But what I want you to think about as we go through this today, is that's just one? That's just a pattern to look for. How many other places are humans doing this? And I want to take today to kind of announce a series of shows, and I think you're going to have a running theme for most of the month of June until I go on vacation toward the end of the month. With this, um, solutions based on taking control of your life, which I know is kind of what the whole show's on, but we're really going to drill on that. And this is like the, the lead-off show in that today, and then tomorrow. I've got a good friend been on the show many times coming on, Xavier Hawk. He recently bugged the hell out ahead of this COVID crap. And he got out before his life was under total thumb control of government. So he's going to talk about bugging out with family, strategic relocation, and things like that. Thursday, I'll be doing a show, a Just Jack standalone show again. And the title of that show is going to be The time to get the hell out of the cities has come. I might even change it to has long since come. I just think that's a bit long for a title. But that's really going to be the attitude that I'll have on Thursday. It's not just, hey, look at everything that's going on. Get the hell out of the cities. Like, really, what more do you need to have gotten out of the cities ten years ago? And we're going to talk about the different versions of getting out of the cities. The urban-rural fringe where I live the urban-rural fringe where I live, where there's a city not far from here, but almost everything that affects the city doesn't affect me. And it's not going to. It just isn't. It just isn't. Or moving further out to what you call small-town America. A lot of people think they live in small-town America, but you live in a fairly large town, very close, suburban you know, suburb of a major city. That's not really what we're talking about. You're still in the city if that's you. We're talking about true small-town America where the next town is about of equal size and it's a fair trip. And then way out there, way out here in the words of uh, Josh Thompson's song, I think, way out here. Yeah, like really moving out in the sticks. And the three different flavors of that, what they look like, and how to pull it off. Because I think that we're we're beginning to see something. And you're going to hear Jeff and I even talk about trying to fix the problems in these cities. By addressing the core issue is that you know people say why do these people tear things apart? Well, they don't have a stake; they don't feel like they have anything to lose. And trying to fix that, but in the end, I think you have a when you come to large settlements, high density human settlements. I believe that they do not mesh with the, the natural human nature. Human beings are not meant to live in cities of millions or even of hundred thousands, and there's plenty of space. So today we're going to talk about how you design systems for your support. Tomorrow we're going to talk with the guest about making the strategic decision of how to do that, including when it involves family. And then Thursday, I'm going to give you a little bit of a a head kick in, but a whole lot of advice on the the mental state you need to be in to, to realize how valuable this decision could be for your life. To get the hell away from places because, well, we'll save that for Thursday. With that, before I go ahead and bring Jeff on, let me remind you um, about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Butcher Box. Butcher Box is just an amazing company, and I'd like to tell you go sign up for it, which you can't. Um, they were doing really, really well before the COVID uh, fiasco happened, and then they really blew up when meat shortages happened and stuff. Everybody piled on, and they actually got to a point where they said, "You know, we're a, we're a company that's growing, and the most important thing we can do is not do growth at all costs, but let's take care of our existing customers." So they shut down new signups. They now have a wait list you can join. Why should you? Well, first of all, the quality of the product is amazing. They're the only sponsor I have where I take my payment, instead of in money, I take it in product. They send me a box of meat for their advertising every month, and I'm happy to have it. Next up, if if this kind of thing happens again, and you are in the fold, so to speak, because when they open back up, you're on the list and you you sign up, this has been a godsend to people. I can't tell you how many people I've gotten emails from say ButcherBox saved my butt in this. Um, it's just a great way to do your meat shopping. And I'm picky about meat. If you become a ButcherBox customer when they let you get anyway, you'll see why. Next up, uh, check out our other sponsor of the day. Sorry, I'm a little discombobulated today, Save Castle. Um, if you, I, I really think that we're at a point now, like, I'm, I'm going to probably do a show soon called, Yeah, Everybody Should Be a, pre- a Prepper Now, but They're Not Going To. Like, if any thing could have woken up the population of this country to needing to be prepared it should be the combination of the riots you're seeing now on top of the covid overreaction shutdowns and let me tell you something historically speaking a pattern of recognition is three we like three we don't like three depending on how it comes up some some third boot is about to drop I don't know what it is yet, but some third boot is about to drop. We're not done with 2020 being a dick punch yet. So you need to be prepared. What's that have to do with Safe Castle? They're like a prepping superstore. Everything you need for your prepping, you'll find it all at SafeCastle.com, a loyal sponsor who has been with us a very, very long time. Check them out today at SafeCastle.com. With that, let's go ahead and, and, and talk permaculture today. And, again, I want you to think while we will talk a lot about growing food and plants in this, I want you to realize, and you'll hear us talk about this other stuff too, Permaculture is so much more than that. It's a design science. that's not just how you design a place you live, but when you really take it and holistically embrace it and think about the whole thing, it's a design science for how you live. In fact, it's a big thing today. People are practicing it that don't even realize it's what they're doing. They call it lifestyle design. Lifestyle design is a form of permaculture if it's guided, by Permaculture's Ethics and Prime Directive. We don't really talk about that today. So as I introduce Jeff, let me tell you how you know if something's permaculture or not. Number one, it sees to the Prime Directive. You know, Prime Directive like Star Trek type thing is a totally different Prime Directive though. And the Prime Directive of Permaculture is the only ethical decision is to see to our own needs and to that of our children. So we have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of our children. If we... If, if, if we fail to do that, if you, if you don't take responsibility for your own existence and for that of your children, then you're not practicing permaculture. And that is very personal. It's meant to be personal. It's, it, it, it's not the concept that you have to be responsible for everybody's existence and everybody's children. First, you, yourself and you, right, me, myself, and I, and your children, And then the tight-knit community, which you are a part of. And if you can do more than that, so be it. But you at least do that. And then there are three ethics to follow. Care of the earth. Like I talked about with farming, if we're farming a piece of land and every year there's less soil than there was the year before, we're making a desert eventually. We're not doing permaculture. And you take that and apply it to anything in life. Care of people. If what you're doing is causing harm to others you're not doing permaculture. If you're an anarchist, we call that the principle of non-aggression. Very simple. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And three, return of surplus. When a system produces more than can be used, that surplus, whether it be a capital gain or whether it be excess material, should be reinvested into that system to make it more resilient or used to further the propagation of more systems. If we're doing those things, if we're reinvesting surplus, if we're not harming people, and we're caring for the planet that we live on, which is our home, and we're doing that in an effort to take responsibility for our own existence and for that of our children, we're doing permaculture. And then it's just a design science that follows that path. That's the best intro I can give you on this so that you, if you're new to the show and you're new to the concept, you have a holistic understanding as we have a fairly advanced conversation with, again, the man I consider to be the number one permaculture designer in the world, a great friend, and a good mentor. And with that, hey, Jeff, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast.
2: Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Always is. Hey, man. I got you on to talk about a bunch of stuff today. You
1: have a brand new, better than ever, uh, permaculture design course, PDC, coming up. We want to talk about that. I want to talk to you a lot about um, food production in small property environments. That's something that's, I think people are more in touch with the need for that now than they have been in a long time, and most of my audience is on small property. And I also want to kind of talk to you about some of the craziness going on in the world today, man. Like, we, we were just kind of talking off air about it and there's a lot of insanity going on. I think permaculture is a huge part of the solution and I think that maybe, maybe people now are more in touch with the, the problem so that maybe they're a little bit more hungry for the solutions that permaculture offers. But before we get into any of that, can you just tell people who the heck is Jeff Lawton, man? I mean, there, there are people that know you very, very well in this audience, but there are people that tuned into this for the first time today and they don't know what a Jeff Lawton is or where he's from. So who is Jeff Lawton? <laughs> Okay.
2: All right. I'm a, I'm a permaculture teacher and, and, and designer and consultant. And, um, I've, um, I trained up with, with Bill Mollison back in, in the early 1980s. And I ended up working with Bill right up until his, uh, final courses and, uh, in, um, in the early 2000s. Um, I've been working all over the world on, uh, permaculture design, consultancy and education. Um, I ended up, uh, running quite a few institutes. Bill Mollison, the founder of permaculture, uh, invited me to manage his institute, the main institute in Australia when he, he first retired, um, back in, 97. Uh, and that sent me on a path of, uh, not only doing more professional consultancy around the world, but also, um, setting up not-for-profit permaculture institutes and other variations of, uh, um, alternative science, um, renewable energy and all kinds of, uh, of, of setups for people so they can um, raise funds. So I very much work in two worlds, uh, the not-for-profit world and, and for-profit world. Um, and um, I've been involved in a lot of websites, a lot of um, online promotion. And um, in recent years, i uh, been developing uh, very high-quality online education systems Um if there's a uniqueness about my style in permaculture, it's probably the levels of professionalism I work in uh, for very large, at times, very large organizations, corporations, and, and governments, and even kingdoms, and on very, very large projects. Um, and they get, keep getting larger and larger and larger. Uh, my my computer's pinging away here. I hope that's okay. That's no big deal. So,
1: I um, mean... Go ahead. Did I lose you? Did I lose you? No, I'm here. That's it. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought I cut you off there. Were you, were you done or do you, were you still rolling?
2: No, I'm good. Oh, okay. Cool.
1: Uh, so you've got a a brand new permaculture design course coming out. Can you start out with telling people what is a PDC or permaculture design course really all about? Um, who should consider taking one and what's different about this one that you're about to release?
2: Okay. A permaculture design course is the iconic definitive course of getting your first really big understanding of what this design science is about because it covers so many disciplines. It's not just about gardening or farming. It's about how we live in a sustainable way and um, and um, develop a world or, or allow a world to emerge that, that, that is not only Self-sufficient and, and, and abundant in every way, but, um, is, uh, allows the world to have all the resources and natural systems that it needs to function well. Um, but also remain, um, reasonably high tech, um, and, and science-based. So, um, permaculture design courses allow you to suddenly see the world in a very exciting way, in a, in a way that you can engage no matter what your profession. Um, You can use it as a design science, as a as a house builder, and you know, as a as an employer, um, and someone who's involved in engineering. You know, no matter which profession, uh, transport systems, energy systems, waste systems, all these different things that humanity works in, we can apply a design this design science to, and make the world work really well, really efficiently. um, So um, everything. Is um, functioning in a way that that helps the natural world, helps everything stay clean and clear and, and and working well. And it and it it really is very obvious that we can all have full employment and and, and meaningful employment. So it really wakes people up. Um, I've been teaching courses uh, since uh, 1991, mm-hmm. and uh, over the last uh, six years, I've developed. And refined an online course, um, <clears throat> and originally it was the first course, the, the face-to-face course, um, so sort of tra- transferred online, and then I developed a specifically catered online course with all the modern technology and a big team of people, high def, high def footage, great backup, hundreds of animations, our own animation team. And most recently, we just keep evolving and listening to our students. I have more than 15 teacher's assistants, students coming in from all over the world asking all kinds of questions. And we've made it easier for people to learn. I've always tried to produce very active students and students who can become teachers themselves, designers themselves, and practitioners. Um, so I've got a reputation of teaching really active students Um, And and I've just tried to improve that. So online, we've been able to create learning tests that are really fun. So each section of the course, you you can take a very casual but enjoyable online test to see whether you've understood each section of the course with links back to where you might have made a misunderstanding. Um, We've had over 30,000 questions within each course that my team's analysed and worked out what are the most Ask questions. Um, we we've created a, a, a final design exercise. It's just an exercise, but it's the most amazing document that allows you to ask. Well, it provides the questions you need to ask when you do a design for yourself or you do do a design for a someone a client. And and really, it's probably the most sophisticated document in permaculture. It took a long time to create, but it literally asks every question you need to ask to design any system anywhere. Um, everything about the land, everything about the clients, everything about the climate, everything about the infrastructure, everything about the legalities of the local area, um, and, and it's a it's a sort of tick box system where you you fill in the boxes and and it leads you by the hand right the way through. What it's like to be a professional designer. So we keep providing systems like this. Um, we provide chat rooms for people, casual chat rooms, waiting rooms, all online so that people can interact together for informally as well as formally during, with, with the course. And I'm, I'm really surprised how it just, um, how the online world allows us to keep evolving systems to help each other. You know, how to socialize, how to interact, how to share information, share experiences. You know, the technology just keeps getting better and better, and, and it's really great. It's a wonderful thing. So this, uh, this
1: document that guides you through the, uh, the design process, that, that's very interesting to me. Like back when I did my first PDC, God, I guess back in 2008, um, you kind of learned all of the elements of a design and all the concepts of a design and you learned the, you know, the, the core of the PDC and then you had to pretty much assemble the design from the knowledge. There was no real like guide except the, 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 the design manual itself and whatever your teacher laid out for you. But you had to then figure out what do I ask? What do I do? How? So you're saying this kind of like steps you through the process so that, The result is the design versus you driving the design because we, we're going to end up with every property and every designer will be different in the final design, but the process really is quite the same. And it's just as we get to different points where this is, this is the, this is a restriction. This is not. And what we're trying to do. So is is that what you're saying? It's more like a, a guide to develop the design. It's a much more um, integrated process of getting the student where they need to be.
2: Absolutely. I think it's the most useful document in permaculture, um, um, although we've made it, our team, but uh, <laughs> I find it extremely useful. Um, what I've found a lot over the years of consulting, and I think the reason that most people um, find it difficult to be a consultant at times, is that you spend a lot of time coaching um the questions to the, to the client, you, you have to coach the, the brief, what you call the brief. So I, I need you to tell me why you want to design and what is it you want it to achieve. And people can't just tell you. And, <laughs> and this is your client who's paying you to consult. So I spend more than half, often 80% of my time actually coaching the answers, coaching. I'm, I'm, I'm asking the client. What it is they really want and why they want it and, and have they thought about it and, 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 and it's a long time before I can actually really feel like I can do a good design until I've got all these answers yeah. and they just don't come forward. So we spent a long time, 16 of us spent a few months putting this together and debating about it and opening it up. And of course there are sections where it says, write 500 to 1,000 words description on this section because this is an area where you're going to elaborate design. But on these, I want to know your altitude, your your latitude, your distance from the ocean. I want to know you know, your street address. I want to know the landform. I want to know, you know, there are set answers that are just like fill this box in. Now create something in this box. Now fill this box in. Now give me an answer here. If it doesn't apply, that's okay. Write it doesn't apply and why and one tick box after another all the way through. I mean, it's quite a document. It's quite a few pages, but it is auto. You know, you're filling it in. It auto fills, and if you don't fill a box, it says, you haven't filled this box. Go back and put something in it. You know, it's like typically automated because people want to jump through hoops. They'll just give me the certificate. Well, I'm sorry. Um, one of the complaints I've had is your course is a bit serious about, you know, training people up. I said, well, that's why you took my course, I hope because you wanted to be trained up to really understand. Um, and, and okay, I'll give you a minimum way of filling it in if you really want to. And, and I actually, I don't fail people. My team doesn't fail people. But they do say, I'm sorry you haven't given us enough information, like a lot of forms we out, collected. Can you just please go no back with the team and just fill this section in? And if you need us to help you... And and it links back to part of the course. If you haven't filled this in you don't understand, click this, it goes back to that section of the course. Re watch it. So the great thing about online is you can replay the teacher. <laughs> you That's just great. keep replaying the teaching. And and we give you references. I mean you can go into the web and find the references as well, you know. So um we're just doing our best to try and help people save save the planet really save save the disasters that were that are obvious more and more year by year that we've kind of mucked up a bit you know we're kind of very vulnerable not kind of we are very vulnerable um and and this is just common sense design it's no mystery it's no woo woo esoteric thing it's all real science it's not metaphysics um, although the world does have lots of mystery around it. I mean, it's wonderful. It's amazing. But um, we're talking about what you could really do and what really does happen out there and, and how you interact with it.
1: You know, I think one of the things this might really help with, though, is what a lot of people that take a course really want. They may not want to actually be out there with clients and, and make a career out of it. They want to be able to design their property. And I, I found like my my advice to anytime I speak at a, a PDC or do any kind of coursework or anything is if you've never done a design, don't design your property first. Pick a piece of property that you don't even know the person that owns it and and do a design for it because it's just on paper. Because you'll get so caught up in thinking like your property is a special little fairy that needs special treatment that's different than everybody and it is different, but. I found that like I could look at somebody else's property and just I could come up with twenty what do you want it to do? Here's twenty different ways we can design this. And you look at your own property, you kinda of get hung up. And I think being forced to step through that will help people that are mostly concerned with how do I design my property for my agenda, my goals.
2: Yeah. I I that's I uh, say, give people in PDC design three or four or five or six probably, it's even for three, for someone else to get through the practice process. That's why we help people do a design exercise, but um, yeah, people come and they say, "I'm not the sort of person to design. I'm really, don't, I'm not taking the course for that. I'm doing it for my own property." Well, uh, 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 a design exercise form helps you do that, but it still doesn't get you through that process of what it feels like to really be honest about your own property and design. So you don 't have to be a designer at the end of the course and and, and and be a consultant by profession. you just have to practice what it feels like to actually make a really fair and honest assessment even about your own property so um, we created this form so that you can you have a chance of asking yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Ask, asking yourself those questions uh, because it's on a form in front of you like an yeah. electronic form it's beautiful it's a nice looking thing it's not just really boring but I have to say to people often I know you don't want to be a professional consultant it's not your type of personality maybe you you don't want to deal with people's issues I'm always dealing with people's issues when I'm consulting for them <laughs> but think about yourself and ask yourself these questions very honestly, and you will come out on the other end with a much, much better real design. Um, so so You've used a word there that is so important,
1: honest. And there's a lot of questions that you can answer that are very subjective and are very easy to innocently lie about, I guess. One would be, Like when I've talked to people, I don't do a lot of design work, but I've done some design for some people, and I'll say something like, well, how many hours a week can you spend maintaining this system? And they'll look you right in the face, and they'll say something like 20. And you go, are you sure? Because let's sit down and figure out what days you're going to spend what number of hours, and let's see if that actually equals 20, because it's real easy to say that. Well, if that person has a full-time job, they have kids that are in activities and whatever, you kind of go like, eh, and I might make a really different decision for somebody that's honestly going to put five to seven hours of, of work a week into a property than I will for somebody that can do 20 because I'm going to have to come up with different types of systems. I might even use different plants because if we're going to like go into a chop and, drop, chop and drop type environment or something, like if we're going to do an urban high volume chop and drop, if that person's not going to actually do it, then I need to find another way to improve their soil because I know they're not going to do it. And people want, like, I think one of the problems is, especially if you're a known designer, they want to impress you. And, and, and you gotta kind of like, have the discipline to say, don't impress me. Tell me what you really want. You know what I mean? So that I can help you design what you really want. And I think that as, as obvious as that is, people don't realize that they do it to themselves. Like, you know, they'll sit down and think, yeah, I'll do this. Well, will you? You know, will you really? And sometimes the answer is No. And that's okay. I mean, your, your mentor, Bill, was big on the designer in the recliner, right? And knowing to, how to build certain things to be as low maintenance as possible.
2: Yeah. Bill wasn't, he knew he wasn't really a farmer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He did. He had no qualms about saying it either. He was happy about it. He was like, you know, this is where I can hide from my wife and, and watch the food grow, you know, and I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, With people in my audience, like I kind of said, I wanted to angle this toward, most of the people in my audience own smaller properties, anything from, let's say, a a tenth of an acre in the suburbs um, to maybe a couple acres. My property is what I would call a mid-sized property. It's three acres. And three acres, honestly, it'll wear you out if you're trying to do as much with it as you can. But can you kind of talk about, like, when someone is – is, is it realizes from a standpoint of like if I if I want a hundred acres I need this much money or whatever and so they're kind of like forestalling their dream and you know what they can actually do with a smaller property that it's better to do something now than to wait till a maybe someday type thing like what are some of the ways people need to approach small scale design I mean I actually think in a lot of ways it's easier that the smaller the property is the easier it is to do
2: and the easier it is to learn for yeah. sure. I'm on 66 acres and um uh, with the recent um um virus issues and everything else that's been around um we we've, we've we've had to um scale back and uh, we've got less people on the farm than ever um in in its uh, 19 year history so there's only three of us here um so we we're we're really uh, downscaling the design and making it efficient uh, because, uh, you know, it's set up for a lot of people, um, to be here learning and, and, and interacting. And that's been a really interesting exercise, how we, yeah. how we downscale and, yeah. and, and make it really efficient. So the animals are doing most of the work and our, uh, our, um, our interactions are, are, are very small. But, um, so from, I really understand what it's like to, to work on large acreages with these, um, um, very, very diverse systems, and not just um, for my own production, but actually as um, an education center to set up this great diversity to people to learn from. So that's that's crazy stuff. Um, but I'm I'm very much involved in being out there on reasonably large size. But I work more and more and more with small spaces. I'm working in a city. Work in Australia. Um, we've got uh, Sydney uh going up with um interesting stuff happening literally um tiny 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 blocks of land we're doing um townhouses permaculture uh development townhouses where where, where there was 10 houses there'll be 30 townhouses redesigned into uh, well demolished 10 10 old houses and put up 30 townhouses but designed with uh, microspace permaculture systems it's becoming a trend, but one of the, one of the great, one of, one of the great students of mine, um, actually a course that I taught with Bill, one of the last, one of Bill's last courses we taught together, um, a student came through who's a pharmacologist. He was then, a uh, qualified pharmacologist and, um, he, um, he was, um, Greek Australian, Greek descent Australian. Um, And uh, he finished the course and decided he was going to put a micro um, uh, permaculture food forest garden into the suburbs in Melbourne, which is like a Mediterranean climate. And uh, this tiny little garden, 64 square meters. So that's what's that? 200 square feet or something. It's pretty small. Um, And um, he, he just set it out as a challenge. Um, he his parents had been conventional sort of food gardeners when he was growing up, and he inherited this small block of land as this backyard to this suburban house, old suburban house, and he he literally became famous in the permaculture world. Deep green permaculture is his website. His name's Angelo Angelo Eliades. So um, I ended up filming Angelo's uh, garden and his efforts, and he's now totally employed as a permaculture consultant, (laughs) works in organic nursery, advises to the city council. Um, People travel from America um, and around the world to see his little garden because it was this concept of being so small. Now, he used an American system of pruning. right? So he over prunes his fruit trees in this tiny space, four times a year it's not over pruning it's specifics pruning and they're planted so close together they crowd each other and dwarf a certain amount so he gets apples he gets four varieties of apples growing apples all the way through the summer from right at the beginning to right at the end and extends his crop let's say um, and so he researched and found this American uh, pruning system of four prunes a year and overcrowding in, in small space and he just crammed it in, crammed it in, crammed it in, crammed it in, um, just as kind of like an experiment, didn't realize that he was going to become famous <laughs> and it was going to be his employment. So let me run you through, through the basic figures that I understand of this. And m- most people wouldn't know this kind of stuff, right? Okay, so in, in this 200 square feet, I'll try and talk of roughly um, imperial sizes, 64 square meters. He has 30 30 fruit trees. <laughs> 12 different types of understory berries and 70 to 80 herbs and vegetables types, right? So 30 types of fruit tree, 12 different types of berries, 70 to 80 different types of herbs and vegetables, more or less eats out of the garden, runs all kinds of little research as well. He doesn't have room for compost, so mostly have as worm farms. He has a couple of static little piles of compost, brings all the organic matter in from the suburbs, he documented every single gram, every every tiny measurement of weight of production that came off the property. I think he still does. But at, at, when it got to the point of peak where he was sort of like getting up to like maximum production, and I'm sure it's incrementally increased a little bit since as it's uh, got more maturity, he was averaging 13.5 tons of production per acre. If if you extrapolated it out to an acre in size, he was getting 13 and a half tons of production per acre. Now, he gets very little pest damage because everything's pruned down quite low. And although neighbors have a lot of bats and bird problems in their larger fruit trees where the old families moved out and the young people have let all the fruit trees go big, the bats and the birds, we have a lot of parrots in Australia, a lot of bird damage at times. They all get smashed, but they don't come into Angelo's Garden because it's low and it's close to the, the the people and the domestic predators like cats and dogs. So the birds don't come down low and the bats don't come down low because they're kind of scared that they're close to domestic pred- predation height. There's evidence sort of like six, eight feet, maximum 8-10 yeah, feet maximum on, on his pruning height now I, I'm there in the garden with Angelo and it's just this amazing little wonderland it, it, it's as, as a pharmacologist some of the questions I asked him was about health and he was absolutely convinced that most, most pharmacies can close down if we do this because a lot of our health issues are around what we're eating and the biology we're connected to in the soil. And these wonderful little systems like this are just full of health-giving plants. But I asked him, I said, Angelo, it's a straight question. It's like you just asked about the question, how much time do you have? I said, Angelo, he's right in the thick of the garden when I asked him this. I said, how, many, how much time do you put into this a week? And he looked at me really seriously and he said, I reckon... Uh, uh, maximum of two hours, maybe an average of two hours, and and I thought about that. I thought that's a square. that doesn't sound like much, but it's not a lot of area. Yeah. But it's roughly, it, it it's roughly two minutes a square meter. That he is is got there. He's got 120 minutes on 60 square meters. So that's like, that's like two minutes for every 10 square feet that you can look at. And make sure it's all okay. If there's something to harvest, there's something to mulch, there's something to prune, there's something to needs to adjusting. You haven't got two minutes for every ten square feet of an acre. No, you know, no, not, no, not really. No. So, so the attention into the small space gives you this massive diversity, where where the life system's so rich and so well attended. The product is so special. The product is so diverse. The product is so nutraceutical. It's like from pharmacy, ph- pharmaceutical to nutraceutical.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is mm-hmm. what we miss out in the small space. We miss the house of the small space attention. And then you come up to like small acreage, which is the real farms. Like what you're on, Jack, is a real farm in my opinion. Okay. And then there's a size where It Just why the hell are we on this large acreage with these massive machines, this total inefficiency of production, this total inefficiency of marketing? It's just nuts. There's a point where it should be damn illegal to go up to a certain size where you have literally less than 1% interaction from nature. Everything's dominated by industrial application. And we wonder why this stuff makes us sick. Well, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we're living on, uh, the, the majority of the world lives on eight crops. Or, I'm sorry, 11 crops. 11 crops for the whole world. And there are, you know, like you just pointed out, this guy's growing, when you all in, over 100, 150, 200 different things on a couple hundred square feet. So the fact that the whole, yeah. the whole planet's existing on 11 staple crops, when you can grow 200 things on a small acreage, is insane. And I see, I think the reason I kind of wanted to slant toward this small space today is let's say that you have a small space. Well, then that's what you have. Let's say you have a property like mine. I've gotten really intensive on my little zone one food forest and my zone one garden. I spend most of my effort on my three acres on probably about 500 square feet, right? Because that pays the biggest return. And I think that, I think it was you that I first heard say If you really want to get down to how you design your property, walk out the door, look down, see that one square foot, design it. Then look at every square foot that touches it and design that. And then look at every square foot that touches that and design. And keep doing that until you have your zone one done. So even if you have a big property, we should all be doing this with that kind of right outside the back door approach and having that zone one – you know, when I got here, I got really excited because I had a big piece of property. I could get an excavator in here. I could do this. I could do that. And, and I honestly made some mistakes, even though I knew better, because I wanted to play with that stuff, when it's really that small bit that feeds me. When I had my little tiny house in um, in Arlington, and I had eight garden beds, man, those beds. I mean, this was like the, the nastiest gumbo black clay you ever saw. And by the time I left there, you could stick your arm into that soil up to your elbow without putting hardly any effort into it. And that's what comes from this small scale. And I remember the guy you're talking about, I remember when you put out a video on him, like when he was doing his chop and drop, when I'm doing chop and drop in my food forest, I pretty much go through and, oh, this can come down, that can come down. that can. When he's in that backyard doing that intense pruning, he's taking that one piece and folding it over and cutting it and folding it over and cutting it until it's like little, almost like he put it through a wood chipper with his bare hands. And on that small property, you can do that. And what that does for soil over time is amazing. And I think that's part of the other thing is like people watch these videos and it's great that we can share all this. But like what's in my backyard, that didn't happen in a day or a week or a year. It takes time. It can go rather quick, but it still takes time. And we have to have some level of some patience, of expectations, like work with nature but give nature something to work with and give nature time. And we can stack into that time and accelerate that process But it still takes some time, and it's in that small acreage. You get a lot – it seems like you get a lot quicker gratification out of that. And if you can make that small piece feed you, then the rest you can – you can have a lot of fun with it. And then there's some piece of it, like we said, into that zone four, zone five on those bigger properties, that why would I want to – why would I want to make a field there? Why don't I just encourage that forest, and then I'm I'm a hunter-gatherer on my own property? That just seems like a much – More common sense, even if you have a large property, use some portion of it to basically restore forest and not worry about a trophy hunter mentality. Like, how much can I get out of it? But how much can I get it to do? And how much diversity can I push into it? And then let nature decide what it wants to keep.
2: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have trouble staying in our nest (laughs) and feathering our nest with this diversity uh, because we keep looking out at the at the larger space. Um, We should stay in the nest, in close, making it as diverse as possible. And as we expand it, kind of like viscosity slows us down out there. It gets a bit sticky. You get much bigger in that style. So at that point, you go, okay, I changed changed the process. I've gone into the next zone. I've got to have a different attitude outside of that intensity. So, you know, a lot of people discredit the fact that it's, that there's much value in these small spaces, but there's the most value in the smaller space, the most value. Um, and the value diminishes as we go out. Um, our, our inner gardens are where we truly can teach. Our small spaces are where we really can teach. It only works if we're in there ourselves, um, interacting with it. As we get outside, nature has to be our partner, and the further we go, more and more the nature is our partner until we get to the wilderness where we're just the observer and the learner. Um, and we're not, we can't do anything but really cause damage out there in the wilderness. <laughs> we, <laughs> we haven't got much positive to do with the wilderness except for observe and learn. Um, um, but physical out there in the wilderness, very very rarely that we have a positive interaction in the wilderness. Um it might be allowing something to happen. That's about it. It's not really uh, a physical interaction. It's allowing wolves back into Yellowstone Park or something like that and then watch what happens. Um, it's not, oh, I'm going to put another bit of earthworks in and, and, and improve the wilderness much.
0: Um,
2: so, but when we're in the inner space, everything, everything we do is, is, uh, is positive. Um, and, and one thing I really, and this is a shame with the this point in history, we have to realize that we've lost our, our health, we've lost our immunity, uh, we've lost our ability to recover. And our gardens are the answer. Um, that's where we're going to gain most health. It's where we're going to gain most positive interaction with each other as well. It's where there's more surplus. Surprisingly, there's more production per square foot in the smaller space than anywhere else. So it's where we can share. Um, and when we know that, when we know it, your biology changes. Your, your, your biology of belief, one of the great books out there, biology of belief, um, with that positive act a- attitude that you know you benefit in your body with what you're putting into it because you're engaged with the life processes. You are what you eat. And if you don't know what you're eating, you don't know who you are. And the more you're engaged in what you eat and how it's produced and where it's produced and how fresh it is, the more you know who you are. And, and as we know who, that. you know, if we know who we are, then we know who can, how we can interact with each other and, 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 and share the truth. <laughs> to be honest, let's share the damn truth. <laughs> You know,
1: if you take a look at kind of where you're talking there about health and, and what have you, you and I were talking a bit about the, the coronavirus and, and the governmental overreaction to that. You got, you got stuck in the, in, in the Mideast for a while on that. You had to get out via Heathrow and, and make a, a long trip back to Australia. Um, but we were also talking about health and the ability to actually fight off a pathogen and, and, and have the innate immunity so that you can do that, and some of the detrimental effects that have uh, that have been you know created by locking people up and basically killing off their immunity and all of the damage people have done to themselves. But this is this is something I'd, I'd like to kind of get your perspective on that I've I've been thinking about lately with viruses and talking about on the air. If you give me any any life form, I can show you that that is either a decomposer, a predator in some such, and not the way we mean predator like in biology class where the, you know, the lion eats the antelope, but I, I would look at it that if, if I eat lettuce, I'm kind of a predator of that lettuce. I'm a consumer of, of some other life form. Or it's prey. And again, not necessarily the antelope to the lion, but the lettuce actually becomes the prey to the human. Like, and, and that, or you have a decomposer. You have a fungi that breaks something down at the teeth of the forest, as you call it. And every life form fits into one or more of those categories. Except a virus. A virus doesn't actually eat anything. It doesn't decompose anything. It doesn't provide food for anything. So there has to be something that it does. And to me, it's basically an evolutionary element. It, it causes things to evolve or it corrects an imbalance. That, that's what it does. So if you had a whole bunch of plants in your field and a bunch of them died, instead of pouring a chemical on there, you'd say there's an imbalance and nature's correcting it. And so instead of trying to use a chemical, you might put in other pioneering species that correct that imbalance. And at some point, this plant can then return. Or half of the if you had half your plants get wiped out, instead of freaking out about it, you would just propagate those other 50%, right? Okay, there's there's the genetics that we need to survive in that environment. If we keep damaging our own immune systems, if we keep creating nutritional imbalances in our body, it is only a matter of time. And people think I'm heartless when I say this. I'm not. It's not a judgment. It's just a statement of fact. It is only a matter of time until nature will correct the imbalance. I believe Bill referred to this type of thing as like the phasmid conspiracy, right? Like if if the trees won't fall to the fungus, the fungus will go up to the trees, and there's your beetles. Like that's what we've done to ourselves. We've so imbalanced our own immunity and our own nutrition that at least one of the reasons you could have a novel virus all of a sudden hitting people is you've created a weakness that nature is exploiting.
2: Absolutely. Uh, agriculture's full of it. In so many ways. The whole thing, most so people, you know, in conventional agriculture, all, most people want to talk to you about how do you get past viruses and pests and diseases. Uh, they don't want to talk about growing things. They want to talk about how do you kill the problems that you continuously got, <laughs> where in nature, d- nature just balances itself out with diversity and interaction. Um, and that's what we've done to ourselves. It's funny, with the coronavirus, one of the things is like all the planes stop. We can't stop traveling. We stop interacting with each other. We're sort of, it's turning into the matrix. We're going to be, in, all of us are going to have our own little Petri dish, if you know, and, and somehow some robotic factory is going to supply us with everything that keeps us sterile. I mean, it's just bizarre. It's just like it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, nature's a lot more powerful than that um and we, you know we have to we have to respect it and as soon as we do, then we're learning from the right area then we're learning and we'll never learn at all that science has to just give up on that idea that we're going to know it all. Uh, we're never going to know it all um it, it's always you know diversifying that the matrix of numbers is too high. Um, and, and you were saying about eight crops, there's actually five crops that are traded on the stock market. There's only, you know, soybeans, uh, rice, uh, maize, wheat and potatoes that are traded on the stock market, yet there are hundreds of thousands of crops that could be part of our, our main food supply. And there are hundreds and thousands more that have yet to be domesticated. Um, A friend of yours and mine, Joseph Simcox, has spent his whole life, the botanical explorer he calls himself, researching plants that are used by different people worldwide traditionally, but also the plants that have yet to be domesticated. And 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 science has rejected all this in recent years. We 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 can't domesticate any new plants. We can't use them except for what's traded on the stock market. Um, we've favoured everything around the economists. And and recently, recently, uh, I was kind of partly horrified and then kind of interested. George Monbiot, the famous Guardian journalist, wrote a post about these new factories in Sweden where they've actually developed – all foods can be produced inside a factory. Um, the whole thing can be genetically engineered. The whole thing can be chemically produced. And, and and you know, um, even meat and eggs and fish and all your vegetables and all your fruit compounds can be artificially created inside a factory. And a byproduct of that factory – is hydrogen. So the, the factory actually makes potential energy while it can produce every type of food that we presently eat and are used to consuming in taste. And my thought on that was really, it was kind of a little bit radical. Um, well, that'd be great if, on the moon. if everybody, well, <laughs> the, the thing is, uh, this is what I thought. Yeah. I thought this would be great because if they did that, why don 't we make selling food illegal and our, you, you couldn't buy food it's illegal if they made it illegal to sell food, but you have a choice, and you you're, you're going to fall I know which side you're going to fall on okay The choice <laughs> is you either grow your own, you can do as much as you like as diverse as you want you just grow your own food, and there's a whole group of us in the world are going just say okay we 'll grow our own food or you eat that factory food, nothing in between All right. Nothing in between we could we can trade globally all those food producers. We can share seeds Just let it go go for it doesn't matter anymore There's no agriculture out there to damage. It's just us the permaculture food producers who provide for ourselves And you can either eat that food and it's free doesn't get sold right. It's just free right? You either grow it or you give it away right or Everybody wants to live that industrialized, chemicalized, pharmaceutical life. They just go and buy the factory food. Doesn't take up any space. One of the things they were saying was takes up very little space, very little, very small footprint and very little water and it actually produces energy rather than, than costing energy. So great. You go for it. Yeah. Go for it. I think there's going to be a very interesting, um, uh, analysis later on between the health of those. people. Well, I was going to say, yeah. I'm all for that because I figure in one generation our
1: kids will run the planet and everybody else will be dead. So yeah, like yeah, okay. Yeah, you, I see. When I hear that, I, I think you know what? I like. I've been watching some of this future-looking stuff lately, and I'm like, that sounds fantastic for Mars. That's, I, that's a, like okay. I understand what you're going for there, but and when I'm watching these, it's actually amazing to me how this is changing my permaculture mindset. Watching them talking about building bases on Mars and bases on on the moon, and I'm going, well, if you can do that, you should be able to turn West Texas into a paradise. If you can make it where I can survive on the moon, then you should be able to make West Texas where I can get land for $10 an acre, you should be able to turn that into an absolute Garden of Eden. And you see what I'm saying? Because like, there's so many problems you have to solve to be able to keep people alive on the moon at the South Pole in a cave, in a 3D printed dome, that if you can do, if you can actually do that, and I, you know, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut when I was a little kid, Jeff. Like, so it's not that I'm against space. I'm not putting down space exploration. I'm just trying to get some perspective here. You're going to talk about taking 100 years to terraform Mars while you're unterraforming Earth. Like, there's a there's a disconnect there, and a, and a, it, it shows me a clear lack of understanding of the value of the gift that life on this planet
2: is. Yeah. That's just a waste of time. Why would you even bother? The energy audit is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I and mean, we just don't do the basic um, energy audit analysis of the energy into the energy out on these systems. Um, and it doesn't matter, West Texas, Saudi Arabia, wherever you are, there are ways that you can really improve landscape really improve and 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 we 've just walked away from, from what people consider as a hard challenge
1: well and i uh, mean you, the the systems are the same, but different you know in the words of Tommy Chong from Chi and Chong it 's the same but different man like when you look at like a larger scale system something like let 's say Mark Shepard would implement with a uh a savanna mimic grazing system, tree lines etc., you take that back to that small scale, scale we were talking about. You have a few chickens in a, in a, a two-run system or something like that, and you're taking the surplus to the chickens and letting them process it and bringing it back to the garden. You're playing a, a larger role in that system as, as, the, as the gardener, but the system's the same. The system is still we're putting the excess of vegetation through the digestive system of an animal that – is breaking that down and contributing to the fertility and returning it and creating a closed loop and creating interconnections. And we're managing that to the, the benefit of the end of the, of the livestock and the individual. It's still the same system. And it, it doesn't matter if you're doing that in Saudi Arabia or West Texas or central Texas or uh, subtropical um, uh, Australia, the 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 basic fundamental principles remain constant. That's That's kind of what I got out of my first PDC that I ever took that, this was a, a guidebook uh, quite literally to be able to design a productive system anywhere in the world. And and so why you're looking at Mars, I don't understand as a, as an aside, but you, you see what I'm saying there. Like it really is the same. It's really the same pattern over and over again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, where I was just working in Saudi Arabia, which is the opposite to a token urban, I was on 80 square miles of property. Um, and most of it was all within one catchment just outside Riyadh in central Saudi Arabia. Um, so I was able to ca- calculate exactly what four inches of rain a year does. Um, and, and and four inches of rain over the year on that catchment all exits one point of the property um, is 19 million cubic meters of water. 19 million cubic meters of water so you've got 80 square miles of property and once it gets to saturated, now, now, as you know like in West Texas most of the rain comes in one big rain event yep. and then a few smaller events so you know you're going to get 75% of the rain come in four hours and I designed I designed 10 miles of swales um, and I put in just one mile with, with a big um d9 bulldozer which is 65 tons and at either end i put giant rock gabions with big excavators just as an example um and they planted a few thousand desert trees along there and watered them but then it rained and 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 i've got the rest of the job to do if if they think it works and then it rained and we had a big rain like quite a big rain like the the usual year rain you know like like nearly three inches. Three of the four inches arrived in one rain. And no one had ever really looked at it. Like I then coached people to look at it because I was saying, you've got green spots here and there because you've accidentally trapped the water. You've done what I've done, but you've done it accidentally. That's why you can see it on Google Earth. That's why you see those green. That's what they are. Let me show you. Let me take you on the ground and show you that green spot. It's just the fact you put a road or a mound there just accidentally. I'm doing it on purpose. Uh, let's have a look. And when it rains, I won't be there, maybe. But when it rains, you go and have a look at that exit point. Well, it rained, thank goodness. And they went out there. When it's dangerous, you're not. You know, it's kind of dangerous in the desert when this happens. I said, you get out to exit point. You film it for me. I wanted them to see it really. But I said, yeah. you promise you film it. Well, they filmed it. It looked like a small section of Niagara Falls running dirt, liquid dirt. It, it's a horrendous amount of water. Horrendous amount of water. like massive amount of water. It looked like say one fifth of Niagara Falls running the dirtiest run you'd ever seen. I said, there you go. You, imagine if you stopped just a little bit of that and soaked it in intentionally. What would happen? What? Tell me what would happen after I've shown you. And they were just like, wow. Why didn't we realise this? I said, I don't know. But there it is. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. You know thank goodness for mobile phones thank goodness for mobile phones high def film and you know the volume of the water and the sound of the water is just like wow right okay you know roll out the bulldozers let's let's put this in and see what the hell happens and this was for a wildlife reserve now what will happen I hope is they'll see it and go we could use this to actually be more productive couldn't we (laughs) you know like yeah, yeah, you could. West Texas, Saudi Arabia, it doesn't really matter. Or your little urban garden, it's, you know, it's different but the same.
1: It's absolutely the same. And one of the advantages when you, you scale that back again into the small scale is most people have this really amazing hard surface runoff called the roof. Then you got a driveway. A lot of times you can capture some of the, the water off of the streets into the – you call a nature strip over where you're at there's all this hard runoff to a relatively small area of soak. And I found that like, it's not even a challenge for me to catch enough water with, I, you know, I'm sitting on rock here. I've only got maybe a foot of soil at the best in, in my area. So I can saturate everything to the point where like, I can't, I can't hold anymore. And it's, it's taken a few little swales here, a few little ditches there, a few little bumps in the ground this way. And, it was kind of a, a happy accident that was not so nice. We, my wife, painted the back porch um, right after I did some work, and it, she painted it, and it immediately rained. And we had put in these little these little swales that flicked the water off the roof into the big swales, and and to watch paint chips float out, you know, a, a couple thousand feet away. Yeah. With no effort, no <laughs> machinery no pumps, no anything, that that water moved. And everybody's like, when I first moved here, like, it's flat. Why would you put a swale there? I'm like, it's not flat. It's not Uh, flat over a foot. It's not flat over a foot. How could it be flat over a 1,000 feet if it's not flat over a foot? It doesn't look like there's a slope. It's very mild. But to watch that water, just that little flick, and to realize here's 20,000 gallons of water hit the roof, they're now in that field over there instead of out the back and through the neighbor's yard. With just yeah. little bitty shovel path, and it's it's amazing what you can do. And then when I think about doing that over, you know, a mile or nine miles, eighty thousand acres or whatever of desert, it blows my mind. And I just wonder sooner or later somebody it's going to be you're going to hit hit that in Saudi or somebody somewhere is going to say you know we're really going to do this. And yeah. the the concept of what that will lead to if ever anybody ever does it at the scale that it's possible because it's not even that. It, it, it's. I don't want to say it the wrong way. It's not that hard when you look at like the earthworks portion of it. There's a lot of other little things that got to go to it, but the basic capturing of that water, once you understand that principle, you, like you said, they're probably sitting there. going, why? Why have we let this water just run away for a millennia, right? Like we could have been capturing this water the entire time, and it's 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 not that complicated. The swale is like the swale and other earthworks are like the biggest bang for the return that you can do, whether it's a little bitty thing that you put in with take a garden tiller and make a couple passes and make a flat swell-like path, or you take a giant bulldozer or scraper and you make a huge uh, feature, it it it's a thousand times return on the energy the first time it works.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, that those paint chips were meant to happen for you. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> wonderful when things like that happened and you can just see it. And, and our mapping ability has made it easier and easier and easier. Our, our laser leveling technology—you know—the machines actually pick up the satellite. If you really want to go to the highest tech, but you know, the laser level, the laser pickup on the machine. The mapping. Wow. The mapping is amazing now. We're in a third of a meter accuracy on everything. We've got 3D. LIDAR has been a revolution. LIDAR has allowed us to see under the trees. The combination of GIS, LIDAR, satellite mapping. There are companies now where you can buy satellite maps that are expensive, but nothing like they used to be. It used to be like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to redirect a satellite. Now, now they're all out there. And it's getting cheaper and cheaper and better and better. I'm working with mappers here. I'm mapping with Ben Misimer in in, um, um, uh, Pearl River in in Mississippi. Uh, One of my students, um, and um, he's just doing the most incredible maps. Um, What he's allowed us to do is put in scales of slope. Instead of altitude, we put in scales of slope. So (coughs) working with Ben. Anything over 18 degrees are just one, one color. That should be forested. But 18 to 12, we can carefully put in tree systems with a bit of uh, erosion management. You know, from, from, from eight to, to two degrees, we can put in tree systems that are highly productive. Um, and, um, we can carefully garden with erosion control and from two to naught, you can, you don't need any erosion control. You're nearly flat and you can, crop as heavily as you like um, when i put those color grades over these accurate maps that have photo and and contour together or just contour or we can shadow map it like it's like ghost map so you can see all the tiny little little indentations when i show these to clients they just go oh right I get it, I shouldn't be putting the tractor across that steep slope, I don't know, you could get killed for a start, but yeah. you know, that's going to cause damage, I shouldn't be grazing that snow, we should going to work that out in the trees, you can see why, because you can see the shading, and this is why this should be zone one, because it's, it's not going to kill you to work it out, you know, and you don't need all that erosion control, and it just, and it, to me, I mean, it's really easy for me to see it after like 30 years of doing this, but like, I have to come back to like, let me colour code this for you to make it obvious. And and working with uh, Ben Misimer on this um yeah um uh, uh, on on this Pearl River design uh company's got wow. Wow, the guy's just gone for it and got me the maps that I just dream about. I just dream about. Um you know, I we had better maps than this Saudi military when I was in Saudi Arabia. They just couldn't understand how we could do it. And it's like God bless American technology. That's all I can say. Like, Thank goodness we can still use stuff for great purpose. <laughs> like you, you guys do get things done with technology. you know. Like We've just got to direct it for, to Earth
1: Repair. Well, you said years ago when we were talking about Monsanto and kind of kicking that dog in the head, um, you, know, you can say what you want, but God, I'd love to have their technology and their budget and use it for good. And I think there's a lot of that out there that... It's not that technology's bad. It's not that we want to go back to living in caves, though sometimes I think maybe that's the only solution because people naturally destroy things for some reason. Um, But all of this technology, when properly channeled, can fix a lot of the damage that we've done and, and enhance things and make them better. Like, I'm all about let's not cut down wilderness, but there's places where we already have, and we've done so much damage. If we don't, you know, those little bit of earthworks here and stop that erosion there. And maybe a little bit of, you know, selective grazing here to resta- establish this grassland. And then, you know, a little bit encouragement there. And then nature can kind of take that over and turn it back to wilderness. But there's places. If we don't, if we don't do something, it won't come back on its own. Or if it does, it'll take, you know, millennia. To, and it, we can, we can, by stacking in time, we can do that same work in, in, in decades
2: versus thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of damage out there It's going to take more than a thousand years to come back. I and mean, that's not much in nature, but you know, in, in, in the, in the age of the planet and life on earth, but it's a lot for us and it's a lot for a lot of suffering for a lot of people. And, and, and we can create an economy like you've never seen the economy, the new economy potential, um, and meaningful employment where people really love to work. They, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have it any other way because it's such wonderful work. Um, yeah um no problem that that's not the slightest problem, but you just have to change direction and focus on the direction you should be going on and 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 the response that you need is the soil keeps getting better, um, you get more soil creation um, and the soil keeps improving everywhere we interact uh, with natural systems i mean it's It's that simple actually you know you can't create soil without having really beneficial life systems. Um, interacting with it, and, and whether they're, they're just wild systems or human systems, it doesn't matter. The soil is the great mediator of, of sustainability. You know, a sustainable system produces um, more more soil in volume and more soil quality all the time. It doesn't stay neutral, and it definitely definitely doesn't degrade. It's an it's you know it's a soil improver. Soil is is you know people just don't get that that you can create soil. In these tiny gardens like Angelo's Garden, these little tiny urban gardens, you can put an inch of soil on every year. And if you really go for it, you can put two inches of soil on every year. And that's better soil and more soil I'm talking about. You're actually putting an inch on, you know. And and our agriculture is just a soil mining degrading system the way it is. And we wonder why it makes us sick.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like, they're trying to, to do something about it now, and they're basically saying, if you lose more than this much, then you're, you know, you're fined or whatever now. Well, that's, that's really completely the opposite of what you just said. Either you're building soil, and you have more soil this year than last year, or you're wrong. And, and I, I think that what's happened is, I mean, a lot of people just don't believe that's even possible, I, I think. And that, that's sad, because if you slow it down, you're still heading to the same place, and it's really bad. You're heading to a place with no life. If you're losing soil every year, eventually that place will not sustain life. There's, there's no – you can make it take 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, but you're still going to that same cliff. You're going in that same direction, and you're not turning the wheel. You're going off the cliff eventually, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, like you said, you can – if you can build that much soil there – People look at, well, how do you do that with with broad scale agriculture? Well, you can, but not the way you're doing it. Like you don't do it with 40,000 acres of corn or 80,000 acres of wheat. You don't do it. It just doesn't happen that way. But if you if we want to grow maize and we want to grow wheat, we can. It doesn't always that doesn't just because it's corn doesn't mean that it's detrimental. Corn's a grass. There's a lot of sustainable ways to grow a grass. But what I've always challenged people with when they, if you try to make any kind of a case to me on monocropping, show me a square foot in nature with one plant on it. A square foot. One square foot anywhere in nature that actually, that's not bare with one species of plant. And I have yet to see a picture sent to me of a true natural space. Nobody touched it. One square foot, one plant. So if nature doesn't put one species in one square foot, what makes us think there's any logical way that we can put one species in 40,000 acres and have it not destroy that entire ecosystem
2: yeah and most of nature is perennial plants not annuals mm-hmm. so it doesn't major in annuals anywhere no very much but you know we we're uh, we don't need so much room the thing is, when we do things efficiently in soul creative ways, we don't need as much room, right? So a lot of what is now in in agriculture is at great distance, at great size, and great inefficiency in transport and wastage and energy consumption. So and and it's at massive distances. So when we start to make things a lot more local, we take up a lot less room. We get a much higher quality product, the sole creative product. Um, but what happens to people is and this is the most interesting thing, people actually become a lot happier and healthier and they feel a lot more, um, they feel safer. They feel like, oh, you know, I've got some real resilience. And because of that, people get less stressed. And when people are less stressed, um, they kind of feel wealthier. Wealth beyond money is where you have you know, an abundance of clean air, an abundance of clean water, pure water, an abundance of clean food, sensible housing, warmth, not hot, not cold, just nice and warm, warmth, friendship and community. When you have all those components in abundance, then you actually feel wealthy. And when you feel wealthy, your fertility rate drops and the population moderates. I often ask people, why do you think the richest countries with the biggest social service have the most infertility clinics? And why do you think there's no infertility in war zones and famine zones? It's a natural process that people become more fertile or all life becomes more fertile when when you're threatened with extinction. But when you feel like you you become really resilient and you have you know everything you need in abundance, your fertility starts to drop and our population actually starts to moderate to something that actually fits into our the natural system. It's a very interesting end conclusion to good design, um, you know. And a lot of people don't don't you know. Obviously, there's a lot of money made out of IVF and infertility clinics. There's a lot of agenda there. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a subject we don't broach much in permaculture, but it will be uh, one of the questions people throw at you. OK, you come up with all these answers. What happens to you know the population that keeps exploding? Well, it's not just education. It's about the fact that you think you're wealthy because you you have money. Right? But if money's destroying the world, that's not the answer. If, 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 if the modern economy is about total exploitation of nature, there comes that cliff. Right? Yeah. You know? Sure. It, so that's not, there's a, there's something in between this, which is like, you know, feeling wealthy because everything you do improves air quality, improves water quality, improves food quality, Improves our, our our housing and our feeling warm and our interactivity of, um, you know, uh, our friendship. Now, what we've done is we've done that with the Internet. We, we're socializing like crazy. We're reading more than ever before. We're, we're writing more letters than ever before. They're not letters. They're emails. They're Facebook. They're, they're podcasts like we're on. We're sharing. We really crave the interaction. I mean, I've had people emailing me every day from all over the damn planet, everywhere, (laughs) everywhere, Bhutan farmers on a big, like, you know, um, messenger group. I mean, I don't know anybody in Bhutan, but then somehow they want to talk to me about pest problems in Bhutan. I thought Bhutan was the happiest place in the world. Apparently not, you know, but so I'm being educated, you know. The 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 Bhutan in the Himalayas that you know had the you know the, the the governance of happiness and all this. Well, it sounds like the farmers are unhappy to me when I'm looking at this messenger group. I mean, these are all new ways. I mean, I'm 65, so I'm an internet dinosaur, and some of these things are confusing me nowadays. And then so many communication channels. Um, it, hopefully, hopefully, this is part of you know the solution coming at that end that brings us back to clean food, sensible housing, clean water, clean air, and all these things that should just be a, a right of humanity. Now, we have a right to clean air, surely people are dying of air pollution, we have a right to clean water, and we centralize water has all kinds of things in it and then clean food well wow that 's just the most ridiculous joke. You know, um I mean, with this coronavirus, I know you and others and uh we haven't really felt anything. I'm on I'm on Zaytuna Farm there's no difference in life whatsoever. Like, my food's yeah. the same, my water's the same, my electricity's the same. I I I'm not connected to the outside world whatsoever. None at all.
1: Yeah, when they told me to socially distance, I'm like okay. Right? And I like we were talking, I have to like in in trying to help people with this show, I have to remind myself daily not everybody has the backyard that I have, that there are people that are really hit by this and that my advice needs to guide them somewhere better. You know, I can't do it for them, but I can at least try to help them understand the situation and how to get out of it. But, yeah, I mean, I if, if you live this way, there's a, so much that goes on in the world that everybody's flipping their minds out about. And and it's, it's not even that you don't care. It's that it doesn't really affect you, and because it doesn't affect you, you become aware of the most important thing that most people don't realize. You don't affect it. You don't affect uh-huh. it directly. Like I, am, I, I, I care about the riots going on in my country right now. I don't have any control over them, and I'm not going to mislead myself into believing that I do, and they're going to have exactly the square root of zero effect on me where I live because of how mm-hmm. I've designed my life and where I've decided to live And I feel bad for the people in in those towns and cities where this is going on. But I also feel like what we do is the solution for them, too. I, I, I can't go do it right now, obviously, while people are setting fires on stuff. But what I said yesterday on the show was people are asking, why would a person burn down their own city? No matter what happened to them, how does burning your own city down help you? And it's not that it helps you. I think what I've not heard a single person in the media say this. It's so painfully obvious to me. People burn down their own cities when they feel they have nothing to lose. And if yeah. you give people the stake in the world you're talking about, where they feel wealth by their backyard, they're not going to burn it down. And and people really- think that you're crazy. I remember back when you said in the first reading of the desert, you said all the world's problems can be solved in the garden, and I put that on the air. And people said that's a bit fanciful and what have you and like just bigger like, and I'm like, you talk about missing the point. Literally all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. That doesn't mean that my garden will solve the world's problems, but it means it sure as hell can solve a lot of my own and it's something anybody can do. So how many times a garden solves a problem for somebody is only dependent on how many times it's replicated.
2: Yeah, imagine this, you've got the garden out in those, you know, rebellious cities right now. You, you put in the garden and you talk your neighbour into putting in the garden. So you've got two gardens co joined. And then you co join ten gardens. Then you co join twenty gardens. And then you co join two thousand gardens. Where are you? You're in this wonderful farm in you would you burn it down? No, no. way. No way. Nobody's gonna let anybody burn that. You got two thousand co joined gardens in Detroit or Los Angeles? You've got a world changing situation. You're going to change the whole world on that. Because once you, once you start to co-join them, you know, it becomes, it becomes a huge people park of, of overproduction. Um, And all the wasted resources get aimed at creating, you know, incredibly healthy, beneficial resources that nobody would want destroyed. Nobody's going to burn that down. You and I are not going to burn down our systems. but the, the, the we've lost our minds if we think about doing that. You know.
1: Well, and uh, so they, what they're saying now is, you know, they, these people are bust in and they're not locals and all. that. there's there is a very organized group in this country called Antifa that is agitators in situations like this. But when you look at it, a city, and you see twenty thousand people in the streets partaking in this, and of course there's the people that have to keep bringing up the the peaceful protesters. I get it. I understand it. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about the people that were tearing down the wall on the side of the Target store, leaving with a big screen TV. Those people do live there by and large, and they don't feel that they have anything. And when people – I know you, like me, you've been all over the world. You've been to places where people really don't have anything. I I remember people saying, you know, well, if it comes to it, I would eat food out of the garbage. And I'm like, let me tell you, I've been to places – where if you go to the garbage, you won't find food because nobody would throw anything edible away. And when people get into that mindset, there's a point at which if something sparks anger, they will act in ways that you can't, you can't get your head around as being logical. But to, if you understand the, the mindset of that person, is completely logical. So the solution isn't more of the thing that caused the problem. The solution is for that person to feel that they have something valuable to defend. So instead of tearing it down, they're defending it. And, and, yeah. and it's hard for people to get their head around because I think most people don't even know what real – like I think they, a lot of people live in scarcity, but they can artificially insulate from it. Many people have never seen true scarcity, so they don't understand that that person that only lives 25 miles from you lives with it every day.
2: Yeah, I mean at one end you've got people stealing big screen televisions. The other, at other end you've got people fighting over toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> None of it makes any sense. Well, you got to have toilet
1: paper to build your toilet paper fort, Jeff. See, if you build a to- toilet paper fort inside your house and you go inside it, it protects you from the coronavirus. You did know that, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Uh, Yeah, I work in a lot of countries where people don't use toilet paper, so they yeah. think it's a bit strange. Mullen. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, some of the gardens we put in, in the Middle East, we're really just linking chickens to soil fertility and, and gardening on, on almost solid rock have actually shocked people. So you are getting this, this effect in small areas. And we got we got ladies in, in Jordan feeding their, their, themselves their, their husband and five kids and producing surplus out of really small gardens. Um, and, and it's just shocking people. You know, they're just shocking that they're feeding their, their large families and producing surplus and teaching school kids to do the same thing. And all they've done is linked, you know, um, food scraps, some organic matter, a few chickens and soil fertility. Um, and and, and these are people who have nothing. They really have, like, compared to the average income earner in America, they have nothing. They're, they're, they're almost on a negative income. Um, so, uh, you know, It it can be achieved so easily, Just we just need to refocus and redirect ourselves and set those examples down. Luckily, the Internet allows us to do that. If if you look at the Green in the Desert website or the Green in the Desert uh, Facebook page, you'll see some of these gardens, and and they're in a hostile climate. They're in that West Texas-type climate. Uh, They're in a village in West Texas comparatively, let's say, and they are living in absolute garden abundance just from these and they and the reason they've followed us is they've got nothing to lose. They haven't gotten it they haven't got nothing. Wow. It took ten wow. years, took twenty years almost of my time going back and forth to the Middle East. But um, I'm I'm redundant. I'm literally redundant <clears> on those systems. Those people are teachers, they they are they have the examples down thank goodness we have the internet to share it.
1: See, that's interesting. You know, we talk about turning the problem into the solution. So the problem we have in a lot of these places here and in in countries around the world is that the people don't feel that they have anything to lose. But what you just said there is since they don't have anything to lose, then why not take a chance on doing something that actually is constructive and presenting it that way? So you take the problem, you literally have taken the problem. You have nothing to lose. That a lot of times results in violence and you turn it into the solution of since you have nothing to lose why not try this path and, yeah. and, that's, and you, that just shows that pattern that do we talk about in permaculture just repeats itself over and over and over again
2: we we started ourselves as with nothing um, when I when the, the Japanese aid organization that got me into Jordan um, funding stopped I didn't I decided I wasn't going to give up and I I, I funded um Block of land ourselves. My wife and I eventually bought enough, uh, saved enough to buy a, a cheap block of land, uh, but with no finance, uh, we literally camped on the land more or less and gardened, compost heap by compost heap, tree by tree, you know, little bits of irrigation by irrigation, and and we didn't open the project. Um, and for five years we return regularly and keep gardening with some wonderful volunteers in the permaculture movement, hard, hard workers. Um, And for five years, the local people thought we were crazy. They just thought we were nuts. Uh, Every year, a few more people arrived, and after five years, the local people decided, you're doing something different. Most aid organizations have a huge opening day, and then it gets worse every day for 10 years. Um, And after 10 years, they more or less collapse. We got better, and after five years, local people started to get interested more and more. And we opened in ten years. So, uh, I, literally on the tenth year, we opened the project. By then, it was I was nearly redundant at that point. It's taken a couple more years, and and it runs on its own. It has its own economy. It has its own education system. It's famous across Jordan. It's got an organic coffee shop. It's got Airbnb. Uh, mud brick, uh, s- uh, straw bale house with eight bedrooms. Um, it runs on solar power as reed bed grey water, as compost toilets, as an abundant food forest, as its own soil fertility and soil creation from chicken tractor compost. Um, and, and, and it's, it's just spreading from there. I mean, people want to go and stay there because they want to experience it and they want to go, okay, well, i can pay a couple of days or a week or weekend with my wife and see what it's like to live on solar power with a straw bell, mud brick house, reed bed, grey water, eat completely fresh food. Oh, by the way, I can still get an organic coffee in the coffee shop. Um, we, we've, we, we facilitated people's comfort zone to have an experiential, uh, lifestyle few days and 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 people travel from overseas to go to that project just to stay a few days there and and see what it feels like to live in a desert food forest permaculture system with everything evidence, evidence supplied online like evidence there for you 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 experience solar power you experience solar hot water you experience reed bed gray water for your gray water coming out the shower you have you you, you get to use a compost toilet and see if you can handle it you know like but you don't lose any comfort. You're in a beautiful place. But if you look over the wall, if you look outside, you're still in in an old refugee camp. It's kind of like iconic that you look outside. The neighbours are guarded. One or two neighbours have done amazing things, but not everybody. You have the comparison right there in front of you. Um I'm so proud of what the local people have been able to do. But it, it took me 10 years to have an opening day. And really, if you go back to my first interaction with Jordan, it was 20 years of my life. Um, we need to speed that up into two years. And we can. We can. No problem.
1: I think the more examples you get, the, the easier it is. I, I remember back in my days when I hated my life, but I was pretty good at it anyway in, in corporate sales. Once I would land a large contract with a, you know, a large company, getting the next one was infinitesimally easier than the first one. And getting a third one was even easier. Because when you started talking to people, well, what have you done? And you were able to point back and say, well, I've worked with Alcatel or I've worked, you know, in that environment. Then, well, you know, Lockheed will see you now, right? Because you, you have a track record. And I think that that's something that's really powerful for permaculture as a whole is there's all these, demonstration sites, all these examples now that we can point to and show, hey, this really works, and here's people that are very happy because of it. And that's something that, you know, even even 10 years ago, we didn't have the way that we do now. There's so much that's happened in the past 10, 20 years. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, if you think back to what what yeah. Joel had to point to in the 80s, it was, there was very little. I mean, I was, I grew up in a garden. I mean, it literally, grew up in gardens. I grew up growing food. I grew up foraging food. I grew up as a hunter. I grew up fishing. I grew up with all this stuff. And if you asked me what permaculture was when I was in high school, I wouldn't have had any idea it even existed. And today, I would say that most most of the time, if I talk to you know, let's say four people, if I mention it, at least one in those four has at least heard of it. So I think we have so much. More traction today than we did even a decade ago.
2: Oh yeah, like it's really it's exponential now. Like more people know what it is. We have television programs in Australia that all you know permaculture programs. But I finished my course in '83 and um, I couldn't find a swale to look at. First swale I saw was Bill was putting in and I put in myself. Now they're everywhere. You just Google it and see you know they're all the information. Thank goodness. So hope there's hope. I think one of the things we give people is hope. I find a lot of people, you know, find our system. Say, oh, you know, I had no hope until I found your system and what you teach, and 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 now I've got meaning and hope in my life, and I'm willing to give it a real good, you know, go. Um, so that's that's some one of our biggest products. I think is giving people real understandable hope.
1: Well, I know you, you got up really early to be on and you've got a full day ahead of you most likely. So let's go ahead and wrap up here. But I wanted to let people know if they want to, they want to learn more about what you're doing and your course that's coming out soon. You've got something that I'll have a link in the show notes for people called permaculture green room. You want to let people know what that's about?
2: Yeah, we've got um, um, a green room we've set up, which is the, the terminology used in television. When you're waiting to go live, uh, they put you in the green room, which is uh, nice. They use a colour green anyway. <coughs> so we've created a green room. So if you want to uh, sign up for our upcoming course um, and um, you want to get, uh, you want to go in the green room, our green room allows you all these access to interesting videos that uh, people haven't seen yet. So um, if you if you take the offer. Um, and um, we've got a special offer for people who want to sign up early. Um, you get to go in the green room and and see all these very special videos um, that are unique and uh, not available anywhere else. So uh, it's a uh, it's one of the offers we're trying to we're trying to over deliver as much as we can as much as we can afford to um, over deliver and keep increasing quality. So that's one of our policies. We listen to our students. We over-deliver as much as we can. We over-service, and we keep increasing quality. And hopefully we always will, uh, because I think that's what people deserve.
1: Awesome. Well, hey, I really appreciate you being with us today, Jeff, and, and I appreciate the fact that you uh, continuously answer questions for this audience as an expert council member. So, guys, if you heard Jeff today and you are like, man, I wish Jack would have asked him, Get that question in for me. I'll shoot it over to Jeff, and we'll have him on a future Friday show with the answer for you on that. And Again, Jeff, man, thank you. For, for those that don't maybe realize, dude, like Jeff's in Australia. I'm in Texas. He got up at 6 o'clock in the morning to be on the air with us today, so I, I really appreciate that, Jeff. Thanks for spending about an hour and a half with us today.
2: Uh, thank you. My pleasure.
1: I, I really enjoyed speaking with Jeff. I really want to encourage you to check out Permaculture Green Room. Um, there are 15 awesome free videos there. Even if you don't ever take uh, the PDC, uh, which will be a paid course, you want to become, a, a, you know, a, I guess a, a free member is the way to look at it. So it's like basically a free membership, and, and you can sign up. I've got a link in the show notes today, so you can sign up through there and uh, check this thing out. It is just some amazing videos that will open you up to what can be done. Uh, so so make sure you do that. And if you're on my daily mail, well, you'll get an email today that'll have a direct link to that as well. You'll get uh, an email today with this podcast. You'll get an email today with some stuff that you won't even hear about on the air. Uh, I send an email a day. I call it the Daily Mail, and all you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe to get on that email list. If you ever decide you don't want to be on that email list, you don't have to get all angry and mad and send me an all-caps letter to too many emails like I get once in a while. Just click on a link that says, I don't want this anymore. It actually says unsubscribe, and you'll unsubscribe, and I'll never share your information. Uh, but get on the Daily Mail. Next up. The MSB is on sale. This is your official warning. Friday will be the last day the MSB is on sale for this COVID thing where I did it for the lockdowns. and I consider the lockdowns mostly over now, so I'm going to shut that sale down. Uh, so do consider becoming a member of my program. Um, that's 25 bucks a year while it's on sale. Discount code is 25BUCKX. B-U-C-K-X. S. Wow. Tw- 25B-U-C-K-S. Two five bucks, twenty five bucks, get you that discount. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more about that. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. Um, I wanted to uh, come give you the song of the day today, and actually, the song of the day I, I swapped it. This is going to be, this was going to be Thursday's song of the day, and I think it's a good one for today. And when, I think when you hear Thursday's show, given the subject. You'll be like, yeah, that was a good move, Jack. John Adam almost... And here's the thing. You know how I talk about John Adam nailing shows? Like, gives me a list three weeks before the show, and the song fits the show perfectly. Had I not worked Jeff in today, the song you'll hear Thursday that goes with Thursday's show would have been today, and so would that show have been today. Because I'm telling you, I'm fired up on this thing. So the only reason that show got preempted is for Jeff's show. So, anyway... John Adams strikes again, even vicariously through time. All right. Anyway, um, this song does fit today. It's called Carry On. It's by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And and this is really about kind of losing someone you care about and carrying on. But the the song, I think, is bigger than that. And I've heard the live version where they talk about it somewhat as they introduce it. And I think it's designed to be. And that is basically the point of this song is shit happens in life, and the only thing that you can do is just keep going. And do the best you can under the circumstances. Boy, that's kind of a theme song for 2020. Because there's two types of people in 2020. There's people that let it pull them down or use it as get the latest excuse to why they're not getting things done. And there's people that just keep going no matter what happens. Carry on. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: One morning I woke up and I knew it A new day, a new way, and new life. Oh, go the way i come out. The sky is clearing and the night is The sun.